It's the Happy Families Podcast. It's the podcast for the time-poor parent who just wants answers now. The amount of screen time isn't a big deal. It's what you're doing, what's happening in the processes of your home that matters most. And now here's the stars of our show, my mum and dad. Hello, this is Dr. Justin Coulson, founder of happyfamilies.com.au. I'm here with Kylie, mum, to our six kids and uh, the Happy Families podcast co-host. Today, we, uh, we're hanging in there with you, Victoria. One more day to go until those restrictions start easing. So, so pleased that things are looking up bit by bit for you. School kids around New South Wales and Victoria preparing to head back. In fact, some in certain circumstances are already doing that. I'm breathing a sigh of relief for them. This has been such an ordeal. It really has. It really, really has. We could talk about it for a long time. I think we've given COVID and the lockdowns and things a lot of time on the podcast. So today for the doctor's desk, we're going to go in a completely different direction and look at some non-COVID related science that applies to mums, dads, parents, and families. First cab off the rank today in our three. We're looking at screen time and the effects on early adolescence mental health and academic and social outcomes. Okay, so this is a, a research paper that uh, that appeared in what's called PLOS One. This is an open access peer-reviewed journal and really, really like this study because it highlights that we might be making too much noise about worrying about how bad screen time is, but maybe and maybe not. This has been one of those conversations that you and I have been having for a long time now on the podcast, and I've been researching it and watching the data really closely. And this kind of this study, I think, highlights why it's such a controversial, provocative, and confusing topic. In a nutshell, a little over, sorry, a little under twelve thousand. United States kids aged nine and ten participated in a study. Uh, they were the, the researchers were looking at how much screen time the kids were getting and their mental health. They looked also at whether they had any behavioural problems. They considered academic performance, how well the kids are going at school, as well as uh, sleep habits, peer relationships, did a whole lot of analysis. Oh, they also looked at the race and ethnicity of the kids and the socio-economic status of the families. And here's what they found. Screen time does moderately correlate with worse mental health. That is, as screen time goes up, so too do mental health issues, modestly. It also showed that there's a modest correlation between screen time and behaviour problems, as well as poorer school outcomes, worse sleep, but screen time's associated with better relationships with peers. And already you look at that and you're like, no wonder this is confusing, no wonder people are going, well, is screen time good or bad? And, and, and as you know, we've talked ad nauseum about how it's not a, not necessarily about how much screen time you're having, but what kind of screen time you're having. Are you doing things productively? Are you connecting and creating or are you consuming? We've also had conversations though around the fact that our children's outcomes will be better if they're in strong friendship groups. Right. They've got strong relationships regardless of what else is going on. They are going to carry them through those challenging times. So, this is a little bit of a confusing one. Yeah, well, let's add a little bit more confusion to it. What the researchers did is they, they considered the, the race and ethnicity of the family. That didn't have any relationship whatsoever to those outcomes. But you know what did? The socioeconomic status of the family. So basically, uh, socioeconomic status was more strongly associated with each of those outcome measures than screen time was. Now, we don't know what causes what, and the small effect sizes really 
do suggest that screen time in and of itself is probably unlikely to be directly harmful to kids at the age of nine or ten. And I think this is really fascinating because what, what it's really highlighting is what's going on in the walls of your home and, and specifically what's happening financially for your family. It seems like the families that have more resources, have kids who do better at school, have fewer behaviour problems, sleep better, uh, have more friends and, and have better mental health, which is kind of a really bad news story for people who are struggling financially. But what it does do is it lightens the burden, lightens the stress that so many parents are carrying around screens. And this is consistent with what, I've been saying on the podcast and, and on my Facebook page for, for a couple of years now, the amount of screen time isn't a big deal. It's what you're doing, what's happening in the processes of your home that matters most. Well, and I think if you're if you're actually asking the question, then you're aware mm. of what's going on in your home and how it's impacting your home and, and your children's lives. And so I think that the fact that you're aware of it means that you're going to be more likely to put things in place to make sure that it doesn't become a big problem as opposed to having your child stuck in a room for five hours at a time without any interaction. I'm so glad you said that. And I think this is one of the really critical things here. We're constantly talking about screen time and the socioeconomic status comes into it. But listening to a podcast like this gives you the intention and the awareness so that the amount of income that your family's got can become irrelevant. It means that you now know this and therefore you can take action to encourage the kids to use their screens in appropriate ways for a moderate amount of time with no stress or no pressure. And so long as they're living a full and whole childhood, spending time with their friends, they're going to be just fine. They're, they're really going to be just fine. Let's have a look at the second study. This one probably doesn't need a whole lot of time, and it's it's just worth a quick mention because I really think that it's, it's useful and important. This one uh, comes from the Journal of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics, and it really just looks at physical activity as a predictor and an outcome of kids who have got depression and anxiety, or, or what we call emotional distress over time. Well, it's interesting. These kind of actually flow into each other, don't mm-hmm. they? If oh, our children yeah. are like heavily involved in screens and they're less likely to be out playing and using their bodies. But if we are aware of the need for physical activity with our children, then they're less likely to be on screens. I hadn't even thought of that until you mentioned it. We call that the displacement hypothesis. And the idea basically is that screens stop kids from spending time with friends or doing exercise or being outside in nature and all that kind of stuff. So, so you're exactly right. In a nutshell, this one's out of Canada. Um, a whole bunch of kids, uh, 1,500 of them or thereabouts were involved in this study where the, they were they were followed for four years from the age of six through to the age of 10 and the researchers looked at children who were playing sport at age five as a predictor of whether or not they would be depressed or anxious as they got older and what they basically found was that uh, the kids who were participating in sport at age five were less likely to have depression less likely to have anxiety as they get older. Full stop, end of story. The study really supports getting your kids involved in uh, in physical activity and maybe even some organised sport. Okay, so this is where this one gets a little bit tricky though. Last week we answered Amy and Sean's question about when is too early to start extracurricular and our comments were oh, yes. delay, delay, delay. That, that's right, yes. So how do, how do we reconcile, how do we reconcile this? 
you've put me on the spot. Okay, so let's think this through. One of the main reasons that we argue for delaying children's involvement in extracurricular activities is because they need to have unstructured time where they can explore the world and be involved in free play and spending time with friends and that kind of thing. We've also identified that there's less of a village and parents are less inclined to let the kids, especially aged between 6 and 10, to just toddle off down to the park. Or uh, So where we are, we're about, a, a, I don't know, five or 600 metres away from some bushland. There's some mountain bike tracks and some nice uh, trails through the bush about five, 600 metres from our home. But I can't imagine you saying to our seven-year-old daughter, hey, why don't you go for a bushwalk on your own this afternoon? Why don't you just walk the 600 metres down there? It's almost a kilometre. And then go for a walk through the bush. We're not going to do that, right? No. <laughs> okay, just, just wanted to confirm. So... So what getting your children involved in these activities does is it gives them the social opportunities that they may not get because parents are busy, two parents working, unavailable to take the kids for those bushwalks or down to the park like perhaps they might have back in, in our day, back in the 70s, back in the 80s, back in the olden days. And so by having them involved in something, it's giving them this protective measure against ill health, mental ill health. Well, I'm going to go down a totally different road. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need organised, structured sports for this to have a positive impact in our children's lives. I think we need to build the village. It's my big word. Yeah. But build the village. One of the best things about our weekends is we've got a couple of neighbours who live next door on either side of us and our seven-year-old spends the day with them. They're all boys. She doesn't even have a girl to play with and she absolutely loves it. And I just love Mm. that they're climbing trees and Mm -hmm. they're (laughs) – the other day I caught them in the driveway. We had a palm tree that died and it was hollowed out. It was pretty rotten. And the three of them, a three-year-old, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old are dragging this tree stump down to the trailer so that they could put it in the trailer for the dump. (laughs) I just loved it. Here it is. They're they're working together. They've worked out what they need to do and how far it's going to take them, you know, to get that thing to where it needed to go. I just, I love it. And it occupied them for what, 30 minutes to (laughs) to get that tree trunk down there? (laughs) And the other neighbour, she's got a mulberry tree that kind of hangs over our side of the fence. And obviously we've spoken with her and she's fine with the kids devouring whatever they can reach. So they're climbing up the rock wall, Mm. (laughs) holding down limbs for each other so that they can grab the berries. It's those kinds of experiences that help our children feel better connected with their environment. So it's worth highlighting in the Canadian study, they're looking at organised sport, children's participation in organised sport as a proxy for physical activity because it's much easier to measure are your kids playing a sport rather than how much physical activity do your kids get each day. What the real point of this is is pretty simple. Your children are going to be protected, not not guaranteed to be inoculated, but they're going to be protected from depression and anxiety in those early childhood years from 6 to 10 if they've got high levels of social involvement and if they've got high levels of physical activity. They don't have to be playing a sport. They don't have to be costing you money. They don't have to be at the soccer fields at 6.15 or 7.15 on Saturday morning. It's just about getting them being active. And, and like you said, if you can do it in the neighbourhood, it's going to be just as good. Up next, we're going to share the last study, which did my head in because there was too many big words. So we'll talk about that one after the break. (laughs) There's a tease. Hey, listen up. We're going to give you a headache in just a sec. It's the Happy Families Podcast. Are screens creating tension at home? Tweens, Teens and Screens is a webinar to guide families to healthy, safe, super screen solutions. Buy today at happyfamilies.com.au slash shop. 
It's the Happy Families Podcast, the podcast for the time-poor parent who just wants answers now. And I don't know how long it's going to take for us to get answers out of this one because there were lots of lots of big words. Now, this is one of my favourite studies and I'm so excited that we can talk about it. Brand new study that's come out uh, from um, the Society for Research in Child Development. It's a monograph, which basically means that it's quite a long essay that talks about something called perceptual access reasoning in developing a representational theory of mind. Just remember, it's for the time-poor parent. Okay. <laughs> so so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down really simply. Whenever I do a seminar about little people and their big feelings, I talk about this thing called theory of mind. Have you heard me talk about theory of mind before? Yeah. Okay, can you explain it? No. (laughs) Right, okay. All right, so theory of mind basically is my ability to understand that you, um, you're a psychological being and that you have mental states that may or may not be consistent with what is true and that you have mental states that may or may not be consistent with what my mental state is. Well, I'm five, so how am I supposed to know that? Well, you're not five right now. But I, but that's what you're talking about. Well, and, and yeah, yeah. okay. So the research basically shows that kids have this thing called theory of mind developed from somewhere around the age of four and a half to five and a half. And the way that we know that is because of what's called a false belief task. So a false belief task walks, works like this. Let's say I'm sitting here with my soda stream in my hand. I've got my nice fizzy drink. By the way, that was not sponsored, but anyone who's been following us for a while knows that there's been this running gag now about soda stream for a while. So I've got my soda stream bottle in my hand. I'm having a sip of my carbonated water and I'm feeling very good while you and I sit on the front porch and have a conversation when my phone rings and I say, oh, I just need to grab this call. I'm going to throw my, my soda stream back into the fridge so it stays cold. I'll be back with you in five minutes. So I answer the call. I pop my soda stream into the fridge and then I go for a walk through the backyard while I'm having this long detailed conversation with somebody who needed my help. While I'm out in the backyard though, you uh, decide to be a bit of a prankster. You go to the fridge, you pull my soda stream out of the fridge and you go and hide it in the pantry. And when I finish my phone call, I come into the kitchen to grab my soda stream. And where am I going to look for my drink bottle? In the fridge. That's right. I'm going to look in the fridge. Why will I look there? Because that's where you put it. And how do you know that that's why I would be looking there when you know that it's somewhere else? What's going on in my mind? Well, that's where you last had it. Okay. So in my mind, that's where it should be because that's where I left it. Correct? Right. Great. Now, if you ask a child who's older than around about five to six years of age, they're going to give that answer. But if you, if you ask a child who is younger than five to six years of age, they're actually going to say that I'm going to look... In the pantry. Why? Because it's where they put it. And they know that it's there. They know that you put it there. And because they know that it's there, they also think that I know that it's there because my brain and theirs are the same. In their mind, they don't get that adults' brains are different to theirs. And this is why we have these big temper tantrums with little kids because they haven't developed theory of mind. Well, it's partly at least. They don't understand that people see things differently. They can't comprehend that their mum or their dad is saying no when everything in their brain is saying yes, yes, yes. And how can you say that? They're not just upset that we're saying no. They're upset that this doesn't make sense because their brain and our brain are supposed to be wired together. They're supposed to be the same thing. So it's very confusing for them as well as upsetting because they're being told no. That's what theory of mind is. Researchers have always said, like I said, somewhere around five-ish is where theory of mind kicks in. But these new, um, this new research suggests that we've got it wrong, that the false belief task is just one way of measuring theory of mind and children can actually guess and get it right, but they don't really know how or why. And that it may be that children need to be a little bit older, somewhere around about seven maybe even eight, before they really start to understand what theory of mind is, before they really start to get that you want something 
that's different to me and not blow up about it. Well, that was what I was getting to you. As a five-year-old, I just – I don't see that. I don't see that capacity yet. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and and this kind of ties in, I think, with other research that shows that children really learn how to regulate their emotions much better by and their behaviours around about the age of eight or nine – so for me, this just highlights how much pressure we're putting on our children to you know, be school ready and to be able to do things that are just beyond their capacities too early. Mm. The pressure that they have to understand all of this as a five-year-old there's so many factors. There's there's so much there's so much expectation. We think that, that because they're walking and talking, they should be able to do all this stuff, and they can't. And so the the main reason that I really wanted to share this this particular piece of research is because it really it really does cause us to pause and ask: Are, are we asking too much of our little kids in terms of their capacity to understand what's going on, to regulate their behaviours, to regulate their emotions, to to hold it all together in the ways that we're asking them to and to understand things emotionally and cognitively before they're ready. So what we really need to do is just take, take the, the pressure. pressure off them. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. We hope that you've enjoyed the Doctor's Desk today. The links to all of the studies will be shared in the show notes. If you love the podcast, please tell a friend. Please share an episode with a friend or please jump onto Apple Podcasts and leave your ratings and reviews so that people can find out about the podcast and make their family happier. As always, we thank Justin Rulon, our producer, and Craig Bruce, our executive producer, for helping us to make the podcast sound the way that it does. And if you'd like more info about how to make your family happier, please visit us at happyfamilies.com.au. Thank you.